with you uh, this morning. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to talk about how to discern God's calling, and I want to specifically talk to those of you that are young people here today. So raise your hand if you're under, well, I have to say under 58 because I'm 58. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> raise your hand. There you go. That includes most of us. Um, raise your hand if, let's say, you're under uh, 20 years of age. All right? Let's see that. Okay. So I want to speak to those of you that are younger today and wish that you were under 20 years of age as well. And uh, um, if we could have the slide up, is that working good? Great. Uh, Kingdom Reign trains leaders internationally, and we'll talk more about that. But one of the things we do is we walk them through what it means when God works in the life of a young leader. Darcy um, mentioned that when she was in high school, I cast a vision. Well, it was a really significant time in her life, a kind of a preparation period in her life for her to see what God could do. And we saw really amazing things, didn't we, Darcy? It was just God on the move. And uh, in the life of Christ, we look at the life of Christ in five phases. And the first phase is that 30 years of preparation. And uh, during that time, it's a time where God prepares us and creates in us a ministry. And we become the message. So I'd like to just start out by talking about my own life and how God began to work in me. Um, it, uh, it really began, if I could, you go to the next slide, please. Um, before I do that, as I tell this story, I'd like you to look for these six guidance factors. We'll talk about, we'll call them clues. So young people, look for these six clues as I tell the story of God's work in my life during the preparation period. So the clues are circumstances in my life, people God put in my life, the formation of character, and especially dealing with character flaws, guidance, specific signposts that God used that were supernatural guidance or counsel, promises that God used from his word, and then just God's goodness, his favor, his empowerment, his helping me along to accomplish the vision. So <clears throat> it began when I was 16 years old. I was, I had just committed my life to Christ, and up until then, my goal was twofold. I wanted a beautiful wife, and I wanted to live in California with a pool. So whatever it took to do those two things, I was going to do that. So I went, right after I came to Christ, uh, it was my, my junior year in high school, and I went to this class in which they had those huge computers at the time that are now this thin, and we were putting in computer code. And I hated it. And I began to pray. And during that time, I was asked to give a sermonette. Sermonettes are for Christianettes. They're those three-minute sermons. So I came up to the little pulpit in our tiny Baptist church. And I had scratched some notes on a piece of paper at the dinner table while my dad was talking to me. And, I, and so I got up there, not really knowing what I was going to say. And God just took over. And have you had that experience where you could step outside of your body and listen to yourself? It was this unusual experience. Now, you have to understand about me that I was a very shy kid. And I did not like standing in front of people. Um, in fact, I would just prefer, <coughs> excuse me, to be alone. 
Thank you. And uh, that was the first thing God began to do. He began to show me that he had given me an ability to speak to people that was really supernatural. Then the next thing that happened is I call it survival. I had survived high school. And because I had survived, I was arrested for, for possession of marijuana. I would have liked it in the year 2012. Um, I uh, was just kind of getting by, afraid to be myself, again, very just, but acting out all the time. And during that time, God got a hold of my heart, and I just had a huge burden for my friends because my friends would say to me things like, hey, you know, why don't you smoke up with us anymore? And I'd be like, yeah, if it was the best day in my life, would I stick a knife in myself? I'm like, life is so good. I got to tell you about Christ. And so my burden was for my friends, and not for computer code. And during that time, as I began to pray, God began to lay in, on, on my heart the whole idea that I could begin to do youth ministry. So I began to do it. I moved from Buffalo, New York, to Chicago, and all my experiences with youth, thank you, Joe, were just incredibly negative. I would speak to these junior high kids, and they would just dice me up and spit me out, you know, and I'm like, that's not for me. So then I was just graduating from Moody Bible Institute, had a degree in Bible and theology, knew quite a bit about the Bible and about making disciples, but I went to a seminar that turned around my whole life. In fact, what I do today is basically teach this seminar around the country. And uh, the, the leader said, it's very possible that Jesus' disciples were mostly in their late teens or early 20s. So he asked the question, <clears throat> what did Jesus do with his youth group so that the enemies of Jesus said, who are these men who have come to our city who have turned the world upside down? They've now come here. And uh, when he explained what Jesus did, it was so simple and revolutionary, I thought, you know what? I could do youth ministry because I could do it with a purpose, not fun and games. Let those kids, you know, think whatever they want. I am on a mission to turn the world upside down by making disciples who make disciples so I don't have to be all that in youth ministry. And I can just cast a vision for them like Darcy was talking about, and they will follow that vision because it's God's vision, and things will happen. And that was the turning point. It was 1981. I was 25 years old, uh, just about to have my first baby, uh, Kelly, and uh, headed into full-time youth ministry. By the way, during that time, there was a guy that discipled me, that gave me a biblical vision for making disciples. That was when I was only 17. So now fast forward to 25. I'm 25 years of age, and the next thing I encounter when I enter into full-time youth ministry are some deep, fatal flaws in my life, some things that were just churning in my soul. And I realized how broken I was, and God sent two men to, into my life, Mark Bubeck and Dave Busby, who helped me understand how God loves to use weak people like me and helped me get a grasp on some of those potential fatal flaws that if I did not address would implode on my life and on, on my ministry. During that time, um, I kept saying to God, the psalmist prayer, may the favor of the Lord be upon me, establish the work of my hands, O Lord, establish the work of my hands. And I was waiting on God 
to somehow do something with my little weak life. And so for 10 years, after a few upstarts, failed tries in youth ministry, I went to Sioux City, Iowa and had 10 wonderful years there. And after about four years of really hard youth ministry, God began to turn that youth ministry around. And it was really exciting. And as a result of those 10 years, then God led me here to Baltimore. And I remember, um, Darcy will particularly remember this, I walked into, she doesn't remember this experience, but when I first was visiting the church, I had not been accepted for the job, I walked into the auditorium. And it was about a 1,300-seat auditorium. And I looked at it, and I could see it. The moment I walked in there, I could see it filled with young people. And when I took the job, we had 30 high school students and about 30 middle school students. So that became kind of a vision casting thing to say, you know what? You could have your own, you, your own, your own ministry to your peers. And there's no reason we can't, if you lead it, I'm talking to students now, if you lead it, there's no reason we can't fill this auditorium. And in fact, the filling of it would only be just a precursor of what God wants to do in this area. And sure enough, um, that auditorium became significantly filled with teenagers and people who were investing in their lives, young leaders. Well, it went on from there, and I was having kind of the time of my life, but what people didn't know is that there was a holy discontent in me. There was a churning in my soul saying, you know what, the church needs to be more than it is. It needs to do the simple things that Jesus did in making disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples. And the things that I had heard about what Jesus did with his youth group, the church needs to do around the world. And the more that holy discontent was in my heart, the more I just thought, I, ha I can't continue to do this youth ministry. And it was frustrating because God was on the move. And so during that time, God opened the door for me while I was on staff to go to three countries. And I'd never been out of the United States except Canada and Mexico, if that counts. And I went to three countries in six months. And when that time was done, um, Grace Fellowship Church released me. Now, understand, releasing is wonderful if you have something to go to. But I didn't have anything to go to. So I had a mortgage, I had three kids, and I had tuition payments at Moody Bible Institute for my daughter in college. So I, now you can come up, Donna, I went, um, I went uh, on a trip to Kyrgyzstan with the youth group. I was still on staff, and the church said to me, look, here's a uh, six-month salary, here's an office, um, you know, here's all the resources you need to figure out what's next. I left Donna home, and she will pick up on the story right here with what happened. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so Brian was off to Kyrgyzstan, and I was uh, experiencing some angst, some concern, some stress. So... Uh, I took Jordan, who was then 12, our youngest, and it was a perfect time to go visit my mom up in Buffalo, New York. So we got in the car for the seven-hour drive, and to entertain him, I had brought along a stack of audio cassettes, uh, Focus on the Family, um, Adventures in Odyssey, 30-minute little stories. So we began plugging him in, one after another after another. And about on the fifth hour, we stuck in number 11, 
uh, cassette tape, and this one was on Three Men of Faith. It was uh, William Tyndale, who uh, translated the scriptures and was burned at the stake for it. Uh, George Mueller, who was, um, who started a, um, an orphanage with no resources of his own, but prayed for God to supply. And for Charles Finney, who was an itinerant preacher in the Midwest in the 1800s. And uh, so Charles Finney was called by one of the groups that he um, ministered to, to come out and meet them in a field because there was a huge, um, horrible drought going on in the Midwest at the time. And they believed that if he came out to the field and prayed for rain, that maybe it would rain. So Charles Finney came trudging out to the field, and this is all being told on this little story, and we're driving along, and it's a beautiful sunny day for five hours. So he comes trudging out with his umbrella to the field, to the group of people, and he gets there and he says, why am I the only one carrying an umbrella when you've asked me to come and pray for rain? And so he puts up his umbrella and begins to pray for rain. And believe it or not, uh, while we're listening to Charles Finney pray for rain on a beautiful sunny day driving to Buffalo, it began to downpour on our windshield. And so much so that I had to like turn on the windshield wipers and it rained for like a good five minutes. And Jordan and I are like, bug-eyed, you know, <laughs> looking at each other. And uh, we turned off the tape, and uh, I said to Jordan, you know, the God that we serve and love, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the Bible. He's the God of Charles Finney and William Tyndale and George Mueller, mm. and he's the God of us. He sees us. Sometimes we can see that God does that in those stories, but he's doing it right now. He sees where we are, he sees what we need, and we can trust him. Thanks, Jeff. So my story continues. Um, I uh, am now out of any kind of salary, and I begin to cast a vision to begin to train leaders internationally. Uh, among unreached people groups. And um, all I had were my little stories from my three little trips, but God began to establish the work of my hands along with the prayer I'd been praying. And he began to send great people, uh, people that I didn't even know yet, in just the right time and in just the right way. And you became some of those people. So you as a church began to say, hey, we believe in this mission and we'd like to come alongside it. So I worked with leaders that had no ability to pay me and began to train them in the same thing that I had learned about how Jesus turned a youth group upside down, right? And uh, <clears throat> it, um, I just want to kind of give you an update because God has expanded this whole thing. And in your bulletin, uh, there is um, there are two pieces, and I'd like you to particularly refer to the card uh, so that you can follow us if you'd like. Please fill this in, and then you can continue to follow us and pray for us, because that's really what we're asking you to do, not just to be involved financially as a church, but to really be praying and engaging in the mission. 
But on the uh, back of uh, the flyer, the, full, the newsletter that's in here is just a little bit about our expansion plans. And so here's what we've seen. We're coming alongside leaders that are often heavily persecuted. So as soon as I got back from the, the Central Asia area, one of our Uzbek leaders, uh, his name is, I'll call him Cobb, and uh, he, he was taken in to the police and he was beaten for his faith. Now, Cobb has led probably 20% of the Uzbeks that now know Christ. Now, the Uzbeks are an unreached people group, less than 1% of them know Christ. He's led about 20% of those people to the Lord. And then just as soon as we got back, he was beaten for his faith. I guess he's okay, and he's rejoicing that he could be counted um, worthy of suffering for Christ. But we're coming alongside men like him. And then um, on February 3rd, one of our leaders in Mumbai, by the name of Shankar, he uh, was, uh, one of his leaders was beaten by Hindu activists and two of the pastors in the region. But the story really isn't a story about persecution. It's about moving the church out into new regions to reach new areas that are primarily Islamic or Hindu and sometimes Buddhist. And we're encouraging these leaders to move out. And as a result, it's, the ministries begun to expand <clears throat> in, in six different language groups and into city after city in India and then Central Asia. And we're seeing leaders just say, please, take us through these five phases of training. Teach us what Jesus did to create a movement. And as a result of that, we have just hired um, <clears throat> a... Uh, a person full-time. He'll have to raise his support, so that'll mean our budget will double. But what's exciting about this is that his wife was in our youth group in Sioux City. So she was 14 when I met her, and her life was transformed through the gospel through a summer missions experience. And then she went on for 26 years with her husband to be involved in foreign missions, uh, taking youth groups uh, through royal servants on foreign missions. And then from there, went on to uh, be a youth pastor's wife uh, for about 16 of those 26 years. And so it's a privilege to see God beginning to pull her back into, you know, kind of my orbit, and we're, we'll have the privilege of working together, uh, her husband and I especially, um, internationally. So, <clears throat> young people, if you uh, would go to the next slide, can you see how God works? Do you see it? So I just told you kind of a long story. Did you see how God worked? And this is how God always works. These are not the only clues or factors, but these are at least six of them that you see in the life of Jesus, you see in the life of Moses. So now we're going to just tell you a story, the story of Moses. It's a real true story. It actually happened. And uh, if we'll go to the next slide, Moses had certain circumstances that he was born into. Uh, you remember that Joseph... It was an elevator up experience. Joseph was right-hand man to Pharaoh. The people of Israel, uh, the Israelites, 70 in number, came and lived in the land of Egypt with Joseph, a Hebrew, being Pharaoh's right-hand man. And they were a privileged people in Egypt. That was elevator up for Israel. But then elevator came down when, if you're following in the Bible, in Genesis, uh, in Exodus chapter um, 1, we learn that the 
uh, a new king came, and he had a ruthless policy that he interacted. So at birth, he said to the midwives, as soon as the baby comes out of the mother's womb, you kill it right there. And uh, yet, um, next slide, the midwives, were, had, they feared God. And uh, they weren't willing to do this. And so when, when Pharaoh said, well, how come these Hebrew boys are living? They'd say, well, we just try to get there. And the mother has birth before we get there. And the babies, and we don't know what to do. Well, he then enacts a new ruthless policy. He says, okay, from now on, you throw all the baby boys into the Nile. <clears throat> and uh, while this is happening, and baby boys are being drowned in the Nile, <clears throat> there is a Levite mom, and she has this beautiful baby boy, and she hides him for three months until she can't hide him any longer. So she creates a little kind of basket out of, uh, out of reeves, uh, and, uh, and then kind of puts some pitch on it, and makes it like a little ark, and floats it along the Nile, among the reeds. And now, <clears throat> Um, God begins to move again. Not only does God first give compassion to the midwives who tried to save the babies, but along comes the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, this wasn't an accident. Along comes the daughter of Pharaoh, sees this baby floating along, opens up the basket, and hears this baby crying, and her heart is moved with tremendous pity. And the sister's watching this whole thing, Moses' sister, and she's witty enough to say, hey, can I go get a midwife for you? And she goes and gets mom. And the, and, and the daughter of Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to pay you if you just raise this baby for me. So now mom is being paid to raise her own baby in a Hebrew home, pouring into him the, the truths and the realities of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And... Uh, <clears throat> You know, God does send the right people at the right time in just the right way. Now, I don't understand the mystery of all these children dying, but I know that God is on the move at just the right time with just the right people in just the right way. And he knows and he sees. And that's what he's done in my life, and that's what he did for the people of Israel. The next slide. Then, not only do we see circumstances and people, but we see God beginning to work in Moses' character. Moses is a strong young man. He's actually 40 at the time, but 40 would be equivalent to our 20 today. So he's a strong young man, and God has placed from birth a passion in him for his people and for his oppressed people. So when he sees a Hebrew slave, a Hebrew, um, slave being beaten by an Egyptian, he, he goes into action, but he has a, a very serious character flaw. He's got a little bit of a temper. In fact, such a temper that he kills this man and then, fearing what's going to happen, buries him in the sand. So now Moses is, is homicidal. He's a murderer. He's gone from the person that God has selected and set apart to a murderer and a fugitive because Pharaoh hears about this and gets really ticked off and is ready to kill him. Moses flees for his life as a fugitive fleeing across through the desert, finally getting to a land called Midian. And there he sits down by a well. And if you go to the next slide, he's sitting down by a well. And along come these seven very lovely young Midian women. 
and they are the uh, daughters of the priest of Midian. Moses watches um, as shepherds then, they're coming to get water for their flocks to fill the troughs, and shepherds come with their staves, and they start just chasing these women away, you know, and kind of wanting to beat them. And Moses stands up a second time. And the scripture says, Moses stood up, and he chased them away, and he saved these women. And then he did something extremely significant. God was beginning to form his character. He, now you kind of miss these simple words, uh, he drew water for their flocks. You've got seven women carrying seven huge water pots, and you've got a strapping young man that begins to draw water, bucket after bucket after bucket after bucket after bucket. And these women stand by, and they're just like amazed. How, how did he do that so fast? It usually takes us hours. And they go off with their water. And uh, what we see here is God's beginning to deal with his character because he's now using his power to save and protect and serve rather than use his anger to uh, try to do things on his own. And God's got a hold of him, but he's age 40 now. And uh, if you go to the next page, God does an incredible thing. He brings people into his life. So dad's sitting, dad's sitting back at home. The three, seven daughters come home. And he's like, how did you get here so quickly? I mean, usually it takes you all morning and afternoon to get water for the flocks. And they said, well, we met this really good-looking guy. And he's, you know, and all these things happened. And... And, and the dad turns to him, and he's like, what? Then where is he? You left him at the well? What are you doing? Go get him and invite him for dinner. And so, you know, one thing leads to another, and Moses becomes part of the family. He's content to dwell there. He's part of the family. And uh, the years pass. He has a kid, names the first kid Gershom. So every time he looks at him, the kid's ba- he's basically saying to the kid, hey, sojourner, Hey, I'm a foreigner in a sojourning, a sojourner in a foreign land, you know, and he's remembering and he's also regretting. The years are passing, they're ticking. One year after another, he's remembering his family, he's remembering his parents, he's remembering his brothers and sisters, he's remembering the boys killed in the Nile, and he's thinking, why did I do this? I had a position of power in Pharaoh's house. I I had all the capacity to influence the system. Why did I do this? And as the years tick, he just wonders what's going on. But God sends people into his life to care for him. And now he's just shepherding flocks. Well, if you go to the next page, God then begins to guide him. Because one day, as he's shepherding flocks on the western side of the desert of Midian, at, at Horeb, the mountain of God, God shows up. An angel in a flame appears in a fire. So the bush is on fire, and Moses turns to see what's going on in the bush, and God calls out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and in shock, he says, here I am. And God says what he always says when he appears, take off your shoes for the place you are standing is holy ground. When God appears to us, it's a holy moment. When God calls us, it's a holy moment. We were, I was just talking, um, if you could just come up here for a second, Joe. 
Joe, I'm going to probably pull you in here a couple times, but there was a holy moment in your life where everything changed. You were just telling me about it. How did God call you into ministry? Just give us kind of the skinny of it, okay? I worked as a mechanic for a year out of high school, um, and after about a year of doing that, I started thinking, I started listening and praying to God that, you know, how might you use me? Um, I started feeling that nudge, um, and then on a, on a, you know, complete God thing, um, I just heard him say, I want you to be in ministry. I want you to be mm. in vocational ministry, and I'm so much so that I want you to trust me enough that you'll go to Grace Fellowship, where I attended at the time, and just ask him for a job, which is stupid. You know, you yeah, don't do yeah, things like right, that. Right. Um, and, you know, I went, and the guy was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I, I do have a job that you should do, um, which was like, really? You know, and so it, it was a complete um, overwhelming time, and um, cool. it, was a, it was very affirming. Cool. So that was your holy ground experience, Ben, Absolutely. where God speaks to you. Thank you, Joe. And this is what's happening with Moses. He's, he's going along. Everything's fine. He's kind of content. Yeah, he's regretting some things, but I've got my wife and family here, and the kids are growing up now, and everything's kind of, I'm kind of comfortable here. And then God kind of breaks into his comfort zone, and he calls him and says, take off your sandals. And, he, and then he defines who he is. Remember what your mom and dad said? I am that God that you grew up with. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of space-time history. I'm the God on the move. And Moses did what everyone does when God calls like this. He hid his face for he was afraid. It reminds me of, uh, of many biblical characters, including Peter, who said to the Lord, get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. So God is pointing out that he's the God not only of guidance, but if you go to the next slide, um, he's the God of promises because he's, re- he's going to refer Moses back now to the promises of God. Um, <clears throat> and uh, God had um, said to, he's, God says to him, I've seen the affliction, I've heard their cry, and I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them And here's where the promises are referred to, to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. The cry of the people has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression of the Egyptians. Come, I will send you to bring my people out of Egypt. What God is doing is he's saying, years, centuries ago, I promised that this would happen. Go to the next slide. Centuries ago, I said to Abraham, to your offspring, I will bring, give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites. If you can say all those ites, I give you a dollar bill. And then, and then Genesis 17, Abraham falls on his face. He's now 90 years old. He doesn't have a child yet, but he's told he was going to be a father of many nations. He falls on his face, and God says to him, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father to a multitude of nations. Next slide. And... Um, uh, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> so here's what I want to do. Um, God's saying to God saying to Moses, "Look, you're a part of history now. Um, I planned this from the beginning of time. In fact, I knew that you would become slaves in Egypt. I knew the elevator would go down." 
and now I'm coming to rescue you, and I'm calling you. And in the same way, God is calling us today, and he's sending us. Some of us will go like Donna and I do. Some of us will live in foreign countries. Others of us will send and pray. But I'd like to just, right today, starting actually last night in other time zones, around the world, this Getty song has been sung. And I'd like to sing at least a part of it. I might cut it off early. I'd like to sing a little part of it because it ties in to the fact that God is calling and sending us. So go ahead and play that song and sing along if you can. I'm going to shut... I'm going to hold my hand over the mic. <clears throat> it might not, it might not, is it working? Okay, all right, so we're not going to do that, <laughs> after all. Um, so, the, you know, God is inviting us to join him on a redemptive mission. And uh, he... Um, this, uh, this song, that uh, it's just about the task being unfinished. And this particular song that we were going to sing is written by a guy named Houghton, who prayed that 200 people would go to China. And um, that's exactly what happened. 200 people went to China to finish a task that was unfinished. Uh, see, what Moses is facing right now is really huge. God's asking him as a fugitive who's been hunted down to go back into the, into the country where they hunted him down. Much like that Uzbek leader I mentioned that was beaten for his faith. I trained him in Kazakhstan, and he went back into his country, into Uzbekistan, and days later was beaten for his faith and questioned by the secret police. He has seven children. And yet God is calling us to some of the most dangerous places and so when this song was written, it was an appeal that the task is unfinished and we need to stop living lives of ease as, as we even confess today. Uh, and we need to get that task done. And so as a result of this prayer um, and this song that was sung millions today, No Christ in China. Um, go to the next slide. The next clue we want to look at is the clue of favor. When God appears to Moses, Moses just doesn't like go hands down, oh, praise God, you know, you finally called me. I've been waiting for this moment. I regretted it so long. No, he doesn't want to go. And he has several objections. And the first one is this, who am I? I mean, look at me. I'm a murderer. Um, who, what, could, find somebody else. Who am I? Um, and, you know, God just basically says to him, look, you may be a nobody, but I'm, I'm going to be with you. My presence is going to be with you. I'm going to empower you. My favor is going to be upon you. Go to the next slide. And then <clears throat> Moses says, well, suppose, suppose, just suppose, I do go. Who do I say that sent me? And he says, well, you say, I am has sent you, the God of your fathers. Remember the God of history that you grew up with? Remember the Hebrew, the Hebrews all know about me. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the one that's sending. So we go in his name. And uh, 
you know, it's not about you, Moses. It's not your plan. It's my plan. I'm on the move. And next, God gives his favor by showing his power. The next slide. So Moses says, but here, listen, God, you really haven't thought this plan through very well because they will not believe or listen to me. They'll say, the Lord didn't appear to you. I mean, you're, you're, what have you been smoking, Moses? Come on. And uh, he turns to Moses and says, what is that in your hand? Oh, a staff? Well, throw it down, and it becomes a snake. And he says, now catch it by the tail. And it becomes a staff. And he says, now put your hand in your cloak, and it's leprous. And he, when he pulls it out, and he puts it back in, and it's not leprous. And then he says, now if they still don't believe those signs, take water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, it'll turn to blood. Is that not enough? And God is saying, look, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to go ahead of you. I'm going to convince people that this vision is from God. Now, I've got to say, Darcy talked about casting vision. I remember the day I cast vision to a group of young people sitting at the stage in front of a 1,300-seat auditorium. I did a terrible job in my mind. I walked away from that and thought, what a waste. Years later, they would reenact that moment because God was speaking. God was speaking to them. God was saying to them, yeah, this could happen. Yeah, we could use you like this. And that's what God does. He says, you know, what's that in your hand? Uh, What's that? Let's go to the next slide. Because then Moses goes on and he says, well, you know, Lord, here's the problem. I am not eloquent. Come on up here, Joe. So um, I have done youth ministry long enough to know I'm not eloquent. Every teenager reminds you, if you try to speak to them, you're not eloquent, all right? I mean, get with the program, pal, and they spit you out. So I had done youth ministry for about 12 years when I showed up at Grace Fellowship. And I remember um, one time, I just thought, this is a really weird experience. They're actually listening to me. And I know, I know that I'm not that good. So I was asking Joe, what a why he came, what, how, did, how did Shockwave, the high school ministry, impact him? What did you tell me? So for me, um, I understand that, that there's a need in, in youth ministry to do um, maybe things that are a little goofy, things that are fun, things that are, you know, there was one time where we did like American Gladiators, and there's other times where we do ropes courses, and they always do things that you're going to be like, gosh, how did they get permission to do this in this building? Um, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff, but there's also the time it, where you, you open the word, and you get to pray, and you get to study, and repeatedly, I remember leaving Shockwave, and, and my mom would say, like, you know, oh, how was it tonight? And every week, I, met, I felt like I was saying, well, Brian was great, or the, the Bible study time was great, or the, the time of the word was great, you know, take or leave it, kind of like the goofy stuff that we do along the way, but I remember feeling like that time was when I was introduced to discipleship, and more importantly, that, that concept of disciples making disciples, that was when that became real for me, and it was like, th- this isn't just a me, about me and my personal relationship with God, that's a starting point, of course, but what this is about is me playing into a larger vision, and you gave that to me, I mean, I think God spoke to you through, through that. Thanks, Joe. So the reason I bring that up is, of course, to glorify me, you know, I'm a great Great communicator. So now that you all understand that, let's, let's pray. 
It's God loves to use weakness. He loves to use weakness. And young people, if you feel like, how could God use me? Oh, that's just what God specializes in. And so he says to him, um, Moses says, I'm not eloquent. He says, well, listen, I made your mouth. Who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. I mean, God's getting a little impatient now. Go. I will be with your mouth. I'll teach you what to speak. And Moses, um, typical of good old Moses, sent somebody else. You know, we've had this conversation. I've heard what the plan is. Just find somebody else. And God gets angry with him. He pushes him to the limit. And I want to just encourage you, don't make God angry. When God has a plan for you, don't go, well, you can't use me. I mean, I'm just a 10-year-old. I'm just a 50-year-old. I'm just a grandmother. I'm just a mom. I've got, you know, God can't use me. And God gets angry. And the thing about God, though, is God... Um, go to the next one. Yeah, he's forbearant. He, he puts up with Moses. At that point in time, he should have fried Moses. But instead, he says, okay, all right, all right, all right. I'm really ticked off with you, but I got a plan B. Um, you want me to send somebody else? I'm not doing that. But your brother Aaron, he'll do the speaking for you. And so he explains, you know, you'll speak to Aaron and put the words in his mouth, and I'll I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth, and we'll teach you both what to do. And so here's the incredible thing. So Moses took his wife and his sons and went back to that land where they were trying to kill him. And this was no small thing. Went back to that land where they were trying to kill him. I've written in front of my Bible the most powerful quote. It says, remain true in your obscurity. That's what Moses was experiencing, obscurity. And remember that you are not the designer of your own destiny. When you hear the call of God and realize what he wants, obey him. Because away in some other part of the world, there are other circumstances being worked by God that may depend on your circumstances. You see, that's what's happening with Moses. On the other side of that desert, You better obey God, Moses. And he goes on and says, this is Oswald Sanders in Not Knowing Where, God's omniscience, listen, God's omniscience that he knows all, God's ordering of things, God's opportunity, all work together in individual lives. And Jesus Christ enters into our lives right in the midst of seemingly haphazard circumstances. i got to read that again. God's omniscience, God's order, God's opportunity all work together in individual lives. And Jesus Christ enters into our lives right in the midst of seemingly haphazard circumstances. So, if you go to the next slide, thank you. That was almost a haphazard circumstance. How's God working in your life? You might think the circumstances are haphazard. Um, but what circumstances do you have? I mean, where did God place you? Where do you go to school right now? Where do you go to work right now? What trials are you facing right now? These are not accidental. There may be evil things in your life happening right now. 
that come because of the evil world we live in, but God's weaving everything to good, for good for his purposes. Who are the people that God's brought into your life that have influenced you for the cause of Christ, who have helped you to become who you are today? What are the character issues, the fatal potential fatal flaws that God's beginning to address so that you have a big enough heart to support the calling God's calling, called you to? And what supernatural guidance? It doesn't have to be some kind of crazy rain story. It could be the counsel of a friend. It could be, like Joe talked about, just the sense that God was saying, do this right now. Uh, it could come in lots of forms. What kind of guidance? And are you sensing you're a part of a bigger picture? There's promises here that God is on the move and he has a plan and you have a small story that's part of a bigger story? And then finally, how is God showing you favor? Or how does he want to show you favor? How does he want to use you beyond your own abilities? So let's just bring the plane down. Let's land it, you know, on the runway for a second. And I just want you to bow your head right now. And I want you to take a moment of reflection. And I'm going to ask you some questions and then we'll pray. So what circumstances are there in your life today that God might use? What people has he brought into your life to make you who you are today? How's God working on your character? Are you inviting him into those potential fatal flaws? What promises has God impressed upon you? And now I just want you to cry out to God for favor. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you love to give favor to your servants. I thank you that you have a work with our name written on it. It may be a work, work as a mechanic, where we're to be the best mechanic we could possibly be. It may be to be a dentist, to be the best dentist in this city. It may be to be a pastor or a missionary. But whatever you've called us to, we thank you that you give us favor to accomplish the task. I pray for this uh, body of believers that you would work in the lives of each individual to understand clearly the calling, the gifting, the vision you have for them individually and then for this body here um, in Catonsville, that you'd use them beyond their wildest imaginations. In Jesus' name, amen.